0: Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. You're listening to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast
1: podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. With me, MLB.com National Editor, Matt Myers. Matt, Hello. How Hello, Mike. You? I'm well. Great. Things are good. Listen, we're going to dispense with the pleasantries and get right into our guest because I'm really excited to have a general manager of a mid league baseball team, which is going to be very cool. Uh, general manager of the Colorado Rockies, Jeff Bradich. Jeff, how are you today? Doing well. How are you? We're doing great. Uh, Jeff, really excited to have you because we have just been really interested in writing about Coors pretty much forever because Coors Field is such a a weird animal to attack and obviously you probably know this better than anybody. Um, One of the things that we've been talking about a lot is kind of this idea of the Coors Field hangover. Um, Everybody likes to look at the home road splits of your hitters and say well when they leave Coors they're not going to be as good but we've kind of had research that's shown that calling Denver home has a huge effect on the road. It makes you kind of a lesser hitter on the road until you leave for another team. Have you observed that as well and has that kind of been an issue in some of your evaluations?
2: Well, I think there's enough data out there now that, um, you know, that people can draw their conclusions um, as they see fit, right? I mean, you, if you really want to truly create um, statistical data to reflect how you feel, <laughs> you can probably do that. Um, but we now have two two decades' worth of, of data here, and, and we are certainly use a lot of that in Um, and how we evaluate the current, and more importantly, how we try to evaluate the future, right, predictive models um, for whatever we're looking at. But the, um, you know, reality, altitude's part of our reality. So our reality is, you know, we don't necessarily dismiss it. Um, There are definite benefits of of playing at altitude, and and there are, um, you know, there are some, you know, over a long season, there can be some, some challenges. And, I don't think we, you know, we don't dwell on it and we don't focus on it obsessively, but we also don't necessarily dismiss it or ignore it either. And, um, you know, my, I still hold true to, I think, the, the opinion that great hitters or, or very good hitters are going to be able to hit wherever, um, and there are physical elements to hitting and there are mental and emotional and cognitive elements to hitting. and. and A lot of times, um, that comes into play as well, no matter whether it's at altitude or whether it's at sea level.
3: What do you think are some of the uh, the biggest misconceptions that people have about uh, playing at altitude?
2: I think the I think it's been pretty well dramatized. If that's is that a word, I don't even know if that's a word. We'll go with it. It'll work. (laughs) We'll we'll, we'll call it a word for for this purpose. I think it's overblown in in terms of the you know the hugeness or the bigness or the assumptions that massive um, changes or adjustments need to be made. And you know I, I think there is a there's an individual aspect to it. You know some players, based on what they do well and what they don't do well, some of those guys are going to have to make some big adjustments. Other most players, I, I think, especially if what's going on between their ears is, is really positive and very confident and they know that that, you know, the thought of playing or, or pitching at altitude doesn't doesn't really enter into their thought process. Usually those guys have, you know, small adjustments to make or no adjustments or hardly any at all. Um, I think that um, the more that the players play here and understand the you know, that maybe there, there are times where adjustments need to be made, but they're not large adjustments. I think time spent here is helpful, um, you know, and, and that's why it, it can be important for, our you know, whether it's in Colorado Springs or it has been, and now it's in Albuquerque, you know, time spent at AAA uh, can be um, insightful and uh, helpful for players. Uh, but I think just generally it's, it's, it's overblown, and it's, it's something that's fun to talk about you know, I know from a media perspective, um, it's something that's easy to talk about, but um, overall, on, on the whole, I think it's overblown.
3: Now, um, a lot of times people seem, seem to focus on, on the negative, but earlier, you know, in your previous answer, you said something about the benefits of playing at altitude. What are some of those benefits that maybe people don't realize?
2: Well, I think it's similar to, you know, it's along the lines of what I just said. The more you play here, um, the better understanding you have of it, and, and, and knowledge can be power, and I think that's similar or in line with what Walt Weiss says a lot. You know, and the way he says it is, this is probably the greatest home field advantage that you could have. Right? I mean, there's if if you believe it to be, and and you you play and you and you actually walk that walk, um, you know, it, it can be very you know. And when we've had um, when we've had very good teams here, we've we've tended to dominate here at home and. I think the knowledge of uh, and being able to manage, um, you know, long stretches of, of time here, that's to our advantage if we do it correctly, and um, it can be to our um, opponent's disadvantage. And yeah. so, you know, that that doesn't necessarily happen every single year It's a different group of players uh, every single year. And but it is something that um, is is pretty consistent, and and can be to our advantage. Um, this this element of of the home field here. It's a big field. There's altitude that's at play. I mean, there's there's a lot uh, that, you know, players that don't play here very often might have to adjust to.
1: Now, I noticed an interesting trend, or at least what I perceive to be a trend in uh, some of the pitchers you acquired this offseason. Uh, you signed Qualls and, and Mott, and you traded for Jake McGee. And, you know, it's interesting because Jake McGee throws like 95% fastballs, and Mott throws like 95% fastballs, and Qualls more of a fastball slider guy, but none of these guys really rely on slower pitches, and I'm interested if that's, it's probably not a coincidence, right? Is this kind of a, a concentrated strategy to get more fastball guys because you don't want them to be a little bit short on their toolbox at home because they won't have to abandon other pitches? They're used to throwing more fastballs?
2: Well, I think they're very they're very confident with their fastball, and they know they can get outs. They can get major league hitters out um, using their fastball, and I think that's a very important thing. Um, you know, to have that foundation. You know, fastball. You know, whether the, you know, if for for a guy like McGee, it just happens to be in their in the area of ninety percent, right? And that's um, you know that's added up to a lot of success for him. It doesn't really matter necessarily. It's like, like there's any magic or any. Um, mystique to a certain percentage it's just really having the ability to command that fastball and it's a plus fastball and he can put it where he generally where he wants to put it and it's good enough where at times if he makes a mistake he can you know he can get away with it and you know that's a very valuable wherever you are I I believe that's a very valuable skill to have Um, you know the fact that that McGee and Mott and and some of the other guys um have become proficient at that over their careers i think that that should bode well for them here and i I know that they're very confident in that pitch um so you know we need to continue to develop that sort of skill set in the rest of our pitchers you know and i think that that's pretty universal no matter where you are the probably the most important pitch is the fastball
1: now if it's true that fastballs are more effective uh, at altitude and it looks like teams have thrown a higher percentage of fastballs in Denver than away over the last couple of years. How do you kind of walk the line between that being maybe a more effective pitch, but also opponents knowing to expect more fastballs?
2: Yeah, well, that's where you know proficiency with it and and mastery of it is one thing, and but you can't, you know, it's not the only it's not the only answer. Um, you know, I, there, there are very wide and, and varying you know, opinions on you know breaking balls and slider versus curveball versus. You know, um, cutter. Um, you know, the changeup is a very important pitch. Uh, the changeup isn't is an arm speed pitch. You know, it's it's meant to mimic a fastball, and yet, the eight, to, you know, sometimes 12 miles an hour slower than than the fastball. And um, and uh, you know, proficiency with that is a very effective tool as well. Uh, y- you know, it's not like we're we're trying to shy away from you know players that have mastered breaking balls, and you look at last year at John Axford, um, a plus breaking ball that played, very, that played very well here off of his fastball. You know, each, each guy brings a little bit of a different skill set at times or mastery, um, but, uh, you know, I, I think I keep coming back to what's going on between the players' ears. If, if they're very, you know, if a guy like John Axford knows his breaking ball works here and he's confident in it and he's convicted in it, it's probably going to be a good pitch for him.
1: So, since this is the StackCast podcast, I have to ask you a StackCast question. How is your group handling this kind of massive data dump? Like, for example, have you found that there's any relevance to spin rate it's being different at altitude than other places, or, or what's kind of come out of that for you?
2: Yeah, it's probably a little early to make massive um, declarations or um, adjustments, or not adjustments, but assumptions on on the data. You know, I think we're we're very much involved in in what you called, you know, the data dump and, and all the new data that's available to us based on the, you know, the, the great technology that's in the game now. And, um, you know, we're still in the process, like most teams are, of acquiring as much data as possible and, and making use of that data. Um, you know, but I think it's still a little early to, you know, to come out and say, hey, this is, this is what we know or we know what we know. It's still, we're still in that kind of uh, gathering and, and analyzing phase. Well, it may be an early stage
3: for uh, a Statcast. It is not an early stage for you in uh, in Colorado. It's only your second season as GM. Mm-hmm. But I believe you've been in the org since two thousand five. Is that correct? Yeah, that was my first full season. Yep. So, what has been the biggest change in player evaluation uh, in finding the right fits for Coors Field in that time? Or it, or do you ever like look back and
2: think like, man, I can't believe we used to look at things that way? <laughs> well, I think it. You know, I think you know that that sort of reflection and that sort of self-evaluation is important no matter what you know element of the the industry you're talking about or your job that you're talking about but i do believe that one of the things that's important for us um with how we have to comprise a roster or how i i believe that we you know we need to comprise a roster at the major league level um is through flexibility and athleticism and and you know, no offense to anybody you know uh, that's been here before in a limited role, but uh, you know, I think the the most uh, glaring example recently was was Jason Giambi, and we had him, and he was extremely productive for us, and a great you know presence in our clubhouse, and, and brought all sorts of value um, to us when he was here. Um, not sure that that go forward, we have you know the opportunity or the room to effectively put together a flexible and versatile 25-man roster and, and have that sort of bat off the bench, um, you know, the limitations um, there. So that has shown up in, you know, in, in a lot of our guys, you know, and in, in, in what they have or what we have done with them to uh, expand their um, their positional repertoire and, and, you know, the skills that they have, whether it's adding outfield to first baseman or vice versa, uh, making sure that You know, our middle infielders, they can run out into the outfield as well and and play other positions um, with our catchers. You know, stuff like that 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 we really have to think about because there's times where we're going to need an extra pitcher, you know, that we need 13 pitchers instead of 12. Um, And that means that the the balance of our roster needs to be athletic and flexible and and give Walt and the boys the best chance to, to, you know, manage a game um, day to day that they can.
1: You know, I'm interested. You talked just about uh, just now about roster flexibility. When you look at last year's team, the 2015 Rockies had the fewest innings from starter starting pitchers by any team since 2008, with the exception of the 2012 Rockies that had the whole four-man rotation experiment. And obviously, you know, part of that's due to injuries and performance, and that's never really the plan. But you know, I've kind of been a proponent of the idea that getting fewer innings from starters isn't necessarily a bad thing. You want to get guys out before they're through the third time through. You get a fresher. Uh, set of relievers in, maybe you get a better platoon advantage is that maybe not so much of a, a negative as you know People kind of criticize the roster for uh, the rotation not going as deep into games
2: well it, You know, I think that Very good starters no matter whether you're at the the major league level or the high minor league levels um, You know sometimes at the low minor league levels. You're you're very you know You're controlled these guys are innings are controlled um, You know there are there are different there's a different set of focus on on establishing young starters, so you don't really get to see what they can do. But um, you know, I, I do feel like the, the best starters, if you're going to be a good starter at the major league level, um, a lot of the value is being able to to manage innings and and put your team in position to win a game. And you know, some nights that's going to be you know, seven innings and one run and other nights that's going to be five and a third and four runs. And yet, you know, we've, we've already got seven runs on the board. And so it's up to our bullpen to win games. I, you know, to put, um, the lion's share of responsibility in in terms of managing innings on one, you know, section of a, of a staff versus another, I I think it's unfair. There are peaks and valleys during a season that you always have. Um, sometimes, you know, the, the, the bullpen is rested and well lined up. Sometimes it's not. You know, sometimes your starters string off a, a bunch of games or, or a couple weeks' worth of, of deep work. And, and, you know, sometimes you, you've got young players that are starters that are pushing their way up into the major league level um, and are ready to go and provide support in that depth. I still think it's important that um, you know that our starters come out and, and believe in themselves to get deep into games, um, and you know that's this still how we're training them and are part of our beliefs, belief system in terms of the guys that are coming up. Uh, that we draft and sign and, and develop in our system.
1: And you talked about the uh, uh, training these guys as are coming up and does that kind of filter down in terms of how you educate them on what you are valuing them on like for example, maybe it's not so much pitcher wins or ERA especially you know at Colorado Springs like it might have been on other teams they've been on
2: Yeah you know you really try to st- for me anyway uh, you try to stay away from results based um, when you're when you're trying to develop young players. Um, you know there comes a point where, Results are important, right? And, and the closer that that you get to the major league level, uh, certainly you got to have those you know factor in. But um, you, know, you, for me, you really try and stay process oriented. And if you're if you're if you're focused a lot on ERA or whatever other um, statistics uh, that you're focused on, um, what are you really teaching? And what are you getting? And, and what are you trying to instill or making sure it becomes hard set in your players? Um, we're very focused on process and what's controllable um, rather than kind of results-based at uh, at the developmental levels. Hey, one more question I wanted to ask
3: you about uh, roster flexibility is, um, you know, you talked a lot about having players who can play lots of positions. And, and uh, you know, this spring training there's been talk that the, for example, the the Dodgers were going to bring in Jordan Schaefer to maybe be a hybrid reliever um, outfielder. And, you know, the Brewers tried that a few years ago with, uh, Brooks Kieschnick. Mm-hmm. Is that the kind of thing that you think may be a consideration for you guys in the future, that kind of role? Do you think that kind of player has a role in the future of MLB 10, 15, 20 years down the line? Is that going to become part of the
2: game? Well, who knows? I mean, it, there there are players that, that I suppose have that skill set. I mean, Kieschnick, uh, Rick Ankiel, I guess, prior to him, you know, um, you could make the argument. Uh, and and there are others. You know, there's there. Are, I think there are probably more guys than um, – than just that that either had the skill set or probably believed that they could do both um you know based on maybe what they did in college a two-way player in college um and i could think of a couple guys in our system that that might be able to do that um i think part of the you know part of the challenge is that it's it can be so difficult challenging for players to get to the major league level and become talented enough to be there and be established there and just by you know, pick a position or, or pick a role um, to add more, and, and you know, and add all the work that goes into that. And um, I think it would take a lot, a bunch of special athletes, to do that and actually pull it off and become reliable in in kind of both roles. Um, it's not like it can't be done, and certainly, um, you know, certainly it's a it's an incredibly intriguing concept or idea the practicality of it uh, to make it a practice or make it uh, you know definitely part of what we do i don't know i'd probably have to give it some more thought um but it's it's not a bad idea
1: jeff final question and then i'll let you go uh, i have to ask you about automata uh, and i know he's injured right now but mm-hmm. he, he's really interested interesting to me because for years you've read about pitchers that have been trying to stay down in the zone and cores get grounders stay down uh, but Otto Vino said he really found success before he got injured by starting to throw high fastballs. Uh, and I have to admit that part of the reason I'm asking this is because he said it, he, he uh, read a piece on Fangraphs that I happened to read. So I like, thought he actually was reading something interesting. Uh, but it really, it changed his approach. And I'm, I'm curious about that. How true is it that your approach is to get guys to stay down? Like when you see Otto Vino starting to throw high, it kind of goes against what you'd expect in Coorsville. But it seems like it actually worked out for him
2: yeah well, this is a good question because this will get back to the fastball um you know the part of our conversation earlier that you know the the major leagues is at some at some point in everybody's career at the major league level they have to make adjustments. the league adjusts to them right and the the amount of scouting that goes on now and the amount I mean, we just talked about the technology and all the information that's available basically at the drop of a hat. Old information and and more traditional scouting information combined with brand new, um, you know, all the new data that, that comes from technology, the book can be out on you as a major league player in a hurry. And so the... You know, if you if you fall into unless you have an elite pitch as a pitcher and you can just throw and do this exact same thing over and over and over and get away with it or or get outs with it, um, you know those types of guys are kind of few and far between. So. You know, unless you have that, you have to start making adjustments the more time you spend at the major league level. Um, And I think, uh, without trying to put words in his mouth, I think that's what Adam was, you know, starting to realize, is that he can make some adjustments, um, you know, especially with the fastball. And and the more places, the more fastball command you have and the more confidence you have that you can put that fastball where you need to put it in order to get a hitter out or set a hitter up for another pitch um, or be less predictable and yet not lose any sort of, um, you know, production or, or any ability to get a hitter out, the, the greater your ability to do that, the, the more success you're probably going to have. And, you know, for Adam, I think that came through experience at the major league level. It's great that he realized that. Um, you know, that certainly doesn't diminish the importance of being able to locate pitches down and, and beat hitters down and um, induce ground balls and induce really weak contact, which is what we focus on. Um, but, you know, that, that shows growth at the major league level in and, and Adam, and, and certainly that's a, that's a wonderful thing. Um, and you hope that the majority of your players, whether they're pitchers or position players, go through that.
1: Oh, great stuff. Like I said at the top, I am just so fascinated by everything that goes into baseball uh, at, at a mile high. I just kind of want to write about it every single day. Um, but I think the fans of the other 29 teams might not want me to. So really great stuff. Jeff Braddich, general manager of the Colorado Rockies. Jeff, really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Well, that was fascinating stuff from Jeff Breidich of the Colorado Rockies. And like I've been saying all evening, I think that Coors Field is just the most fascinating place in baseball. We could talk about this for probably hours and hours. What's, what's the thing that to you the most? I think for me,
3: the thing that jumped out at me was the way that... Uh, Jeff talked about how the Rockies actually do have a huge home field advantage, which is, in my mind, the biggest misconception about Coors Field. Um, you know, since the league expanded to thirty teams, the Rockies have a five thirty 530 percentage, five thirty seven winning percentage at home, which is thirteenth in baseball. However. In that time, they have a 385 winning percentage on the road, which is dead
1: last. Probably in, by a lot. I'm yeah. I don't have it in front of me, but it's by gotta a be. So, a lot. to
3: me, that's sort of where the, the big disconnect on course field for most fans is that actually at home, the Rockies win.
1: Yeah. Uh, and on the road, they don't. And nobody else can create that home atmosphere or home environment that they have. But I think it's interesting, it kind of goes into this, is is you look at the last 10 years, they scored the most runs at home, as you'd expect, and that's not a surprise, uh, and the fewest runs on the road, right? And so it's kind of, how do you weight those things? Is it that their true talent is on the road, and then that means they're the, the worst hitting team in baseball, and Coors is so magical it makes them the best team in baseball? Probably not. I think it's more likely that they're kind of middle of the pack, and it gives them a boost at home, and hurts them on the road. Uh, and I think that's kind of what people have a hard time getting on board with, is that you can be playing in you know, Houston or Miami or Los Angeles, and if you're wearing Colorado gray and purple, it's going to hurt you because of what your home field is.
3: Yeah, and when they were, when they did have true like playoff caliber rosters you know, in 2007, they won like 62% of their games at home. Like, right. they, they were completely dominant at home and then were like 450 on the road, which was you know, they just sort of basically held serve. Good start. enough. And yeah. what did
1: they do with it? They, they had a good bullpen which is not something they've always had, and I think that's what they're trying to go for this year, right, with, with McGee. I know not everybody loved that trade for, for Dickerson, but, I mean, there's no doubt that Jake McGee is a very good pitcher. Like, he's going to help the bullpen, regardless of, of what it looks like long-term.
3: Yeah, I mean, you had written recently about uh, the Rockies acquiring all these fastball pitchers, um, and then, you know, what was your takeaway from what Jeff had to say about, about uh, those, those pitchers?
1: I think, you know, he, I think he agrees with it a little bit, but there's also a sense of, like, well, I'm not going to give away all my secrets here, right? <laughs> uh, he's, he's right. Like, it, more than what pitch you're throwing, it matters are you good at throwing that pitch. So it, I think it's not necessarily, well, these guys throw a ton of fastballs in a vacuum. It's these guys have good fastballs. We I mean, you know Jake McGee's got a good fastball. If you're going to throw your fastball 90% of the time, and that's, like, pretty, pretty much all you throw, you better be good at it. So, I mean, I think that that's got to be part of it. And you look at some of the other guys they have on the roster, like uh, like Chad Bettis who I think that they're kind of excited about, he started throwing the fastball a lot more in the second half and a pretty good second half. Like I asked, though, I still worry if somebody goes up to the plate and they know you're throwing a fastball, it's pretty hard to get by with that. You know, if you're going to lose that, that sense of a mystery about what's going to come next, that's going to be hard for pitchers to overcome, I think.
3: But, yeah, but then you get to, you know, the classic example I always use is Bartolo Colon, right? I mean, he's a guy who doesn't even throw that hard. He throws a fastball 85% of the time but he just locates it perfectly and he's not a star anymore but he's he's, good enough. he's a serviceable pitcher and the fact that he's able to be a serviceable pitcher throwing the ball yeah. 88 miles an hour and throwing almost only fastballs speaks to the power of like fastball command and what you can do if you if you command your
1: fastball future rocky bartolo colon if there's any justice in this world <laughs> um, so i think to me that's
3: what they're kind of getting at with these with his group of arms that they're accumulating. And, I mean, he didn't come out and say it because he also gave the John Axford example and said, well, we don't shy away from pitchers who sure. throw a good curveball. But it, it seemed pretty clear he was suggesting we want fa- fastball change guys
1: first Yeah, and I, I think the biggest takeaway for me is that there's been criticism of them from other places about not really having a plan, you know, sort of being kind of stuck in the middle. And I, I think that that's not necessarily true. They're just not advertising it. And it's not really in their best interest to do so. So I totally understand why. But they, they do have a plan. They, they do seem to be trying to improve the defense. They're trying to get more relievers, trying to get more fastball guys. Will it work? You know, who's to say right now? But I do think that they are, they are trying to compete this year. And I, they might actually be a little better than people think they're going to be.
3: Well, you know, the other thing that I thought that was really interesting uh, that – he brought up was talking about roster flexibility and players who can play multiple positions. And, you know, their big free free agent position player signing of the winter is a yeah. guy who is, by all measures, a fantastic outfielder in all three uh, yeah. outfield and, positions. And he won't even be playing center
1: this year. Like, yeah. He'll be playing a corner. But he can. That's the he point, can. is that yeah. he, he can. Right. Um, well, he'll, he'll be an upgrade in the outfield over Dickerson. I mean, I like Dickerson's bat a lot more. Parra will definitely be a better outfielder. And that's a big outfield. I mean, you got to have guys that can go out there and catch it. And he'll certainly be an upgrade for that.
3: So to me, you know, when we use that Jason Jabby example of sort of basically saying, this guy hit for us, but as a use of a roster spot, it ended up being... It's a little limiting. Yeah. And I guess, you know, for them, a team that, you know, we talk about, Maybe most teams shouldn't be carrying 13 pitchers. That's probably a little excessive. They may be the one team. They might be the team. you can make a case. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. Um, particularly if you know, they are going to be going to a model where maybe they're only asking their pitchers
1: to go through the lineup, turn the lineup over two times. And I think if there's any team in really baseball, any sport, that should be trying to do things completely outside the box, like experimenting things that maybe don't make sense, it, it's this. It's this team right if you they did this a couple of years ago when they went to the four man rotation you know 75 pitch limit I thought it was a fantastic idea execution was kind of iffy because they did it in the middle of the season and the, the talent there wasn't maybe enough and, and Dan O'Dowd the former GM came out this week and said we probably should have done it at a different time I don't know if they'll do it again but I think this is exactly the right place to be doing something like that because you're not going to win with a traditional five man rotation and everything else like every other team does you could get actual Zach Greinke up there and his 166 ERA probably turns into a 310 or whatever because like nobody is going to be that ace starting pitcher, like you would say.
3: Well, exactly, and that was sort of what I was getting at with my question uh, about the hybrid uh, pitcher outfielder, yeah. whether or not you know they're the team that to me they're the team. They should any, try everything. If, if, if that should be should be trying that. Literally, um, literally everything. And I, you know, again, I, for all I know, this is the, the, the first thing on
1: Bright's to do list. He's not going to reveal it to me. Well, but... you, you mean I, I feel he was open enough, considering what a GM's level of like telling everybody his evil plans are, you know. <laughs> So, what
3: else? Uh, you know, what else stood out to you about the uh, about the discussion?
1: Well, I, I think it's interesting. You know, we talked mostly about pitching, like almost entirely about pitching, because that's all everybody wants to talk about. But there is an offensive component to it. Right. And I I think I read an article with him recently where he said that there was they didn't have a magic bullet for pitching, but they did have something they looked for statistically for hitters. And he wasn't going to tell anybody what it was. He said it was proprietary. There was some some aspect of hitters that they really like tried to target. And so it's on us, I think, to guess what that is. Um, And we kind of talked about this off air a little bit. I think launch angle. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I'm going to quote Darren Willman. And if you don't follow at Darren W, you totally should, because he works for us now and he tweets out all kinds of fascinating stacks. uh, this, this is uh, from last year, you hit a ball over 100 miles an hour. You hit it between 25 and 30 degrees. Uh, it's a 76% of the time it's a home run across baseball. Three-quarters of the time you do that, it's a home run. In course Field, it's 87%. So I think it's interesting. Maybe you can kind of identify guys who fit that profile and you bring them to course Field. Maybe that's what Matt, uh, Mark Reynolds is. I don't know. I'm kind of spitballing here. I don't have the numbers in front of me. Maybe that's why they, they identified him or power and said, this guy is really going to work well for us based on his specifications in this park.
3: Or maybe they thought that uh, Corey Dickerson didn't fit that profile. Also,
1: maybe that's possibly true. You know, maybe they, they say say everybody else kind of overvalues him, uh, and so we're going to go to him for a good reliever. I mean, we're kind of making this up because we don't really know what's in their head, but I think it's plausible for sure.
3: Yeah, and one of the things I, um, if I had, you know, two hours of of Jeff's time, which I would have liked to have asked him, is sort of how teams, if it makes it harder to trade hitters, if you're the Rockies GM, because. Because other GMs will be like, well, you know, he only has a, you know, a 750 yeah. OPS on the road or, or 600, I, whatever. And he's
1: probably like, you know, that that's not how it works. And they're like, yeah, but we got to sell this. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, and that's you
3: know, you wrote about this earlier in the offseason. And the example I always give when people open this up is Matt Holliday. Uh, Matt Holliday, five years with the Rockies, OPS plus of 131. In the next five years with the with the uh, Cardinals, OPS plus of 144. Yeah. So we see a time and again player, and Dickerson will be fascinating to see. Um, yeah,
1: well, yeah and it's, it's interesting because he's going to Tampa, which is not really a hitter's park. you know, And it's OPS Plus, it is park adjusted. But you could even look at that at, at Raw OPS. Obviously, he's never going to hit the way he hit in Coors Field all the time because he'd be the best player in baseball. It's just not realistic. But he is going to be better, in my opinion, than he was on the road where he had like a 290 on base percentage. He's a solid player. Uh, and I think it's going to be another data point, like you said, with Holiday. Uh, Dexter Fowler is another guy, Seth Smith. There's been guys who have left Coors. And they've, they've been pretty good. Nobody falls apart unless they were already about 90% of the way towards falling apart, like Ian Stewart or Brad Hopper, Garrett Atkins, where their careers were basically over anyway. Uh, it's it's not the death sentence leaving altitude that people think it is.
3: But you do, it does make me wonder about a guy uh, like Carlos Gonzalez, because he would seem to have been the perfect trade candidate in this climate. like With his contract, like two years left, like $40 million, yeah. which is, you know, you couldn't, if he was a free agent now, you know, he would get, He'd get more than that. Eight times that. How, how he's not an Oriole or a Cardinal yet is... But it makes me wonder that, like, teams were basically trying to lowball them on Cargo, and they are basically saying, hey, this is a superstar corner outfielder, and teams were like, well, you know, the home road splits. Because otherwise, to me, you know, he's the guy you trade not dickerson
1: yeah and we don't know how much goes into it you know maybe ownership likes him. maybe he's like this the, is true star even though i think arenado is probably the face of that franchise now but i think you're right he's probably the guy they should have moved um and they didn't and it's a really fair point i'd love to ask some other team and probably have to be off the record because no one's going to talk like freely about what their negotiations were like but hey did you go up to colorado and say we this guy has big home road splits we don't want to give you that much for him even though we know that he's probably still going to be good because it wouldn't surprise me if that's actually how these things go so, the Rockies, I think everybody looks at that division in the West and they think Dodgers and Giants and Diamondbacks. I, you know, I don't know if the Rockies are contenders, but I know they're fascinating. Like, I love everything about watching this team and everything they're doing just to see, because when they finally figured out they've got that home field advantage, like you said, that could actually be something really interesting.
3: And they have, you know, it, it wasn't that long ago that they put a winning team on the field. It they went were, to the World Series.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it was like six, year, six years ago. What year is this? It was like eight years ago. It was nine but, years ago. But the, it was eight years ago. Nine I mean, years ago now. It will now, be nine years ago now. But yeah. they were the playoffs two years later. Yeah. I mean, you, you can win there. Um, it just it takes a really specific mixture, and I don't know if they figured it out yet. Uh, listen, follow the Rockies, and I, I know we're biased because we're all part of the same family here, but they're just so fascinating to watch, and they don't really get the attention the other teams do. I love uh, paying attention to them, and I know, Matt, you do as well. So uh, thanks to our guest, Jeff Breidich, GM of the Colorado Rockies. Thank you to Matt Myers sitting right here next to me. National Editor, I am your host, Mike Petriello. This is the MLB.com StatCast podcast. We'll see you next week.